No, thank you for that. Uh, no, it's great to have you with us. Let me pray as we come again to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us through your Word. We thank you that uh, we have the Word in our own language that we can understand. And we thank you that we have the freedom in this country to meet together openly like this and study uh, and explore what you're teaching us each week. We pray that our hearts will be open uh, and our spirits will be willing to obey what you're teaching us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, appearances can be deceiving, uh, and uh, it's a phrase we use all the time. And sadly, it influences the way we think about church sometimes as well. And one church leader that I worked closely with when I was working overseas uh, for many years told me one day that in his culture, what is important is to have an outwardly impressive service on a Sunday. That was the most important thing, and that's what he wanted to focus his energy on. When we talked about whether people were actually growing uh, as Christians or becoming Christians, he said the behind-the-scenes work of investing in people, of building people up, of making disciples, well, that's not really that outwardly impressive. You can't really see the results from that in the short term. You don't really have anything to show for that. You don't really get any credit for that because you're not up the front necessarily. So that was not important in his culture. I need to be seen to be doing something impressive, he said, up the front, seen to be doing something. This vision that we come to in Zechariah 4 helps us to think through how we respond to the reality that appearances can be deceiving and what, really, what, it, what it really is that God wants us to focus on as we gather together just here on a Sunday, but also when we meet during the week in various contexts. How do we live as God's people in a world where appearances can be deceiving? As we've seen so far in the first half of the book of Zechariah, it's made up of eight visions and we're up to vision number five. Next week we're going to do the last three visions in one go. Uh, don't worry, it won't be too overwhelming, but um, that's where we're going. And this is one of the more complex passages, I must admit. And uh, if, you, I, I try, if I tried to cover everything, we'd still be here at midnight tonight. So I'm not going to try to pick up on everything, but try to stay with me as we plough our way through. If you want to ask me anything more about it afterwards, please feel free to engage. Now the actual vision itself is actually only in two verses, verse 2 and 3. If you have your Bibles open there, uh, Zechariah chapter 4, uh, then the vision is explained in sort of three parts, uh, verse 6 and 7, and then 8 to 10, and then again in 11 and 14 there's a bit more of an explanation. The vision and the explanation are basically two different ways of saying the same thing. We're just looking at it from two different perspectives. All right, let's try to get a, 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 that's sort of the big picture in terms of structure. Let's try to dig into, dig into some details. First of all, where are we in history? We, we keep talking about this because it's always important to put it in the context of history. And as Jason mentioned, after being taken out of the promised land into, the, into exile for 70 years, the people had started to come back to Jerusalem and resettle. And remember the ABCD of exile? A is for? Assyria, B is for? C is for? And D is for? Darius. Very good. Okay, so after uh, Assyria invaded first, followed by Babylon, who destroyed the temple, and then Syria, uh, King Cyrus, sorry, King Cyrus, uh, let them go back and rebuild and uh, resettle. Uh, the city of Jerusalem, and then King Darius took over from King Cyrus and was ruling uh, from afar as the work of rebuilding on the temple had stalled, A, B, C, and D. 
Now, this is where Zechariah's uh, visions come into play under the rulership of Darius. Now, the first verse introduces the participants in this vision as the prophet Zechariah and the angel who left him back in chapter 2, but who has now returned. The angel what didn't appear last week, that particular angel, and now he's returned here. Now, let's have a closer look from verse 2. So the angel asks in verse 2, what do you, what, what do you see? So Zechariah answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top uh, and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. And there are, also, uh, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. That's the vision. That's, that's all we have here. Now, how many things can you see in that vision? Have a look at me in the text again, uh, if it's on the screen perhaps. How many things, can, or in the Bible there, how many things can you see? I can see five things. Okay, let's have a look. Gold lampstand. Uh, now, uh, it's a bit like the word candelabra. Who's familiar with the word candelabra? Yes, it's a great English word, isn't it? Candelabra. I've got to love a word that sort of rolls off the tongue nice and fancy like that. It's basically a stand for candles. And uh, the technical word for lampstand here in the Bible is the word menorah, but we're going to use the word lampstand because it's easy to, to uh, say. Now, what else is there? There's a bowl at the top. There's seven lamps and there's seven channels to the lamps. And finally, uh, it's not a partridge in a pear tree by any stretch, but it is two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left of the lampstand. And in our growth group on Wednesday night, we had a lot of fun drawing, trying to draw this image on a whiteboard. Uh, and um, Peter did a pretty good job there, as well as Jonathan with the trees. Uh, and so that's the image of the, that's the vision that he gets. Now you're probably thinking the same as what Zechariah was thinking when he says in verse 4, what are these? Oh, what, are, what are these? And this is where we get the first word of explanation from the Lord in verse 6 and 7. So he said to me in verse 6, uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, now that's an unusual name, isn't it? Uh, hard to pronounce, Zerubbabel. Now my dictation microphone on my laptop during the week when I was reading uh, things out for it to type up for me, you know, when you say something verbally and it automatically types it for you, couldn't quite handle the name Zerubbabel. So it kept coming up with things like the rubber wall or sell rubber ball, and things like that. But anyway, it mu Zerubbabel must be important because his name uh, appears four times in these verses from 6 to 10. His name actually means seed of Babylon and it appears four times. He's also mentioned in four other books in the Bible. In Ezra and Nehemiah, he's listed among the returnees from Babylon who rebuilt the altar and relayed the foundation of the temple originally. And Haggai also refers to him as the governor of Judah and he also appears in Chronicles. Um, and as the governor of Judah, it meant that he probably would have had some kind of oversight of the returnees as well as being accountable in leadership to the Persians, uh, to King Darius. We also know from Haggai that as a direct descendant of King David, he was an heir to the throne, a grandson of one of the last kings before the exile. The heritage of this is very important because hundreds of years before, God had made promises. King David, that in the future his son would build the temple, back in 2 Samuel 7. And David's son Solomon indeed did build the temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in the exile. So after being without a temple for 70 years, an heir to the throne, another heir to the throne, Zerubbabel, has come to begin to rebuild the temple. 
and remind the people that God was dwelling in their midst. But the people had limited resources and faced a stiff opposition, a mountain of opposition, in fact, as the imagery of verse 6 suggests. Have a look at verse 6 there. What are you? Uh, what, what are, uh, verse 6 there, it says, uh, sorry, verse, um, what are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Verse 7, sorry. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Now, mountain here could be a general expression of all the difficulty Zerubbabel faced. It's a little bit like we say mountains of paperwork. Does anybody have mountains of paperwork in their job or even at their home? things you've got to get through, or a mountain of trouble. But the Bible doesn't tend to use it in that way, and while mountain could refer to the pile of rubble that was left over from when the temple was torn down when the Babylonians invaded 70 years earlier, it's more likely used in the way Jeremiah and Isaiah use it to describe world powers who are set against God's people. So in the case of Zerubbabel, the mighty mountain that's against him is the the Persian Empire and a nasty piece of work in the person, a man, another man with an interesting name, Tadanai. He's a governor in a neighbouring area who tries to talk the Emperor Darius out of letting Zerubbabel rebuild the temple. There's a lot of opposition. And ironically, the plans of Tadanai backfire when King Darius consulted the records of King Cyrus and end up seeing the project through, as prophesied in verse 7 when it says, Then he will bring out the capstone. To shouts of God bless it, God bless it. The image of capstone here is not a foundation stone, but rather um, the stone that signifies the completion of a project, a bit like the unveiling of a plaque when a building is completed. So this particular message addressed to Zerubbabel is there to encourage him that despite the seemingly unsurmountable opposition, despite things not looking that impressive, one day, one day, in the future, the project will be completed. As capable as he is, Zerubbabel is reassured that it will ultimately be God who brings about this in verse 6, as it reminds us, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God is engineering the circumstances behind the scenes to bring about the rebuilding of the temple. All right, how are we going so far? Fair bit of detail there. So let me quick, quickly summarise. The point up till now is that there is a connection between the temple and the vision of the lampstand. And when we think of lampstands in the Bible, it sort of reminds us of, of the portable lamps, uh, the lampstands, the portable temple known as the tabernacle that we had in uh, is, is Exodus. Uh, and they carried it around in the desert. Just like the pillar of flame that sort of guided them through this night sky, um, leading them at night. So too the lights in the lampstand in the tabernacle reminded them that God was in their midst. So, so this brings us to the next bit of explanation in verse 8 to 10. That is not directed to Zerubbabel as such as an individual, but it's also directed to the people that he was leading. Although it's saying, basically saying something very similar. Verse 8 says this, then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. 
Certainly Zerubbabel was, one, was among the first ones back from exile and was probably involved with the original laying down of the foundation stone of the temple 20 years earlier. But it was an unusual day of mixed celebrations when they originally put that temple stone down, that foundation stone down. And as it's recorded in Ezra chapter 3, this is what it says. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Haggai also picks up on this sense of disappointment when he says, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? The message for the community in verse 8 and 10 was although they despised what appeared to be a day of, of small things and unimpressive things, they would be proved wrong. Because in verse 10 it continues and says, men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Plumb line here is just another way of saying the stone used in the construction process to, to make sure the walls are straight. Some also translate the word as a capstone, the final stone from the old temple used as a stone for the new. But either way, the key point is that it is a reminder that God has kept his promises to rebuild the temple and be present in their midst. In the process, Zechariah will be shown to be a true prophet. And his words come true about the completion of the temple. This is sort of reinforced by the reminder of, of the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth there, that, that unusual verse there in the brackets at the end of verse 10. It's a link back to the seven lights of the lampstand and a reminder of the all-seeing Lord who knows everything throughout the earth. So he's engineering the circumstances to create an opportunity to rebuild the temple and once more be present among them. All right, the pieces are starting to, to come together a little bit, but not unlike the question in verse 4, Zechariah had a couple of final questions in verse 11 and 12. Then uh, in verse 11 he says this, then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. Now, I know there's no such thing, and, and anybody who's involved in education, and Mark will attest to this and as a teacher in a classroom, there's no such, we often say there's no such thing as a dumb question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. We say that all the time, and judging by the angel's response, you'd think that Zechariah just asked a stupid question, because the angel says, do you not know what these are? It's almost like a sarcastic response. He did the same back in verse 5. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty stupid when somebody says to me, don't you know what these are? And I'm supposed to know what they are. Well, obviously, I wouldn't have asked the question if I knew what they were. Then somebody comes back with a, don't you know? Obviously you should know and you feel pretty stupid. But if it's good enough for Zechariah, a prophet of God, to ask the question, well, it's good enough for me as well to ask, well, what, what are these things? Tell me, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And the repetition of the questions and the angel's questions sort of heightens the tension a little. 
delaying a response somewhat. The angel replies in verse 14, so he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now the language of anointed there is literally sons of oil who serve the Lord of all the earth. They are not anointed in the sense that they receive oil. Now the wider context of the vision seems to suggest that the oil comes from the trees and pours into the bowl and then that oil is supplied to the lights on the lampstand to keep them burning. And to serve the Lord of all the earth is literally to stand before the Lord. The word serve there is uh, the same as the word to stand before the Lord. Last week in chapter 3 we saw that Joshua had a role in standing before the Lord as he serves the Lord as high priest. So mentioned last week that the servant, the branch, and in the immediate context, this branch is a reference to Zerubbabel. So in light of this, the two sons of oil, the anointing ones can be uh, referring to, can be seen as Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple and Joshua, the high priest who operates the temple. Now let's just summarise and come back a little bit. The message of the vision is that despite all the appearances, the pathetic looking size of the temple and the mountain of opposition to rebuilding it, the temple will indeed be completed and God will once again dwell with his people. God will use his two servants, sons of oil, Zerubbabel, the descendant of King David and Joshua the high priest, to make the temple operational again. People in Zechariah's day were not to be discouraged by the slow, unimpressive progress, but to be encouraged that God was indeed at work to complete the temple and make it fully functional. What does all this mean for us? As we live this side of Jesus, we know that the vision in Zechariah is ultimately pointing forward to an even greater temple built by another descendant of King David. Remember in John chapter 2, after Jesus had cleared the temple and he was questioned about what authority he had, he went on to say, it's destroyed the temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? The temple he had spoken of, says John, was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said to them, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. In the time of Zechariah, God was dwelling among us through the temple, and in the time of Jesus, God was dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and the pres his presence, the presence of Jesus on earth, was the same as the presence of with us. With his name he called Emmanuel, God with us, as the beginning of Matthew's Gospel says. But you will recall that there were two trees and the other one represented Joshua, the high priest. It was through the ministry of the high priest offering a sacrifice in the temple that people could approach God. It's the whole imagery of the, uh, the, the temple in the, in the Old Testament, that God was present with his people and people could approach God ultimately to a sacrifice. Of course we know that this is pointing forward to Jesus. Through the ministry of Jesus offering the sacrifice of himself for his death on the cross to bring forgiveness and atonement for our sins that people can ultimately approach God. And it is what we're going to celebrate later in the service of the Lord's Supper. 
bread and the wine. But there is another layer to all this because in the passage in, in a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 that was read out for us earlier by Vera, it says these words. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When people put their trust in Jesus, they become part of Christ and become built into a kind of spiritual temple. When Zerubbabel and his mates began built the building work, their efforts looked so unimpressive and unlikely to succeed. When Jesus came to earth and was left hanging on a cross to die, he looked foolish and unlikely to succeed. People today continue to despise the foolishness of the cross. The resurrection changed everything. After his resurrection, Jesus went on to tell his disciples to build a different kind of temple, not a physical one, but a spiritual one. He told us to make disciples of all nations. Making disciples is often a long, slow, hard work, outwardly unimpressive, full of mountainous opposition, and constant setbacks that feel like endless days of small things. And if it was up to us, it is unlikely to succeed. We can be encouraged that it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Well, how do we live as God's people in a world where appearances can be deceiving? We we'll draw out two practical things. Among many other things, it's in a few weeks' time. It's coming up to um, twelve months now that I started serving among you here. Twelve months already? Can you believe it? And I can't believe. Where's the year gone? But one of the things that I wanted to do when I first started here was to try to work out ways in which we could develop a culture of prayer through congregational lists that we put out reasonably quickly, but also the regular meetings that we set up online throughout the week and the like. Now, I'm not sure how you're going with any of that, but let's continue to be work out ways in which we can be intentional, find ways to pray about what it means to be making a disciples of all nations. This is passage today is reminding us that as we're gathering as God's people, that it's not by our might or our skill, our power, but it's by the power of God and the spirit of the Lord Almighty that transforms people's lives as his word goes out. By praying together, it's a constant reminder that it's not us, but it's God who is doing the work in people's lives. And so that is why I want to develop a culture of prayer in this congregation. Call on God to act and transform people's lives. And we've seen how God has been answering us in the past in different ways. I would encourage you to make an effort to revisit some of those prayer lists uh, this week. I've even printed out some updated copies uh, and you can grab them on the table on the way out. Um, some people have left and some people have sadly passed away and some new people have joined us. So I've updated those copies for you. Maybe you could uh, attend one of the prayer meetings that's listed on the back of the bulletin there. Or even start one of your own at a time that suits you or um, be, uh, begin something or continue to do something in your family devotions. Let's, 
please feel free to give me suggestions about other things that we can be doing as a congregation to cultivate a culture of prayer here at Anfield. But secondly, developing a culture of discipleship. Sometimes it's very easy to be focused on the big fancy and impressive things. But yes, we want to have a healthy Sunday service, but it's more than just what happens here on an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Because appearances can be deceived. It's not about the building or where we meet, but whether we are, as a congregation, being committed to making lifelong disciples of Jesus, giving people an opportunity to what we say and what we do to receive Jesus as Lord and continue with Jesus as Lord over a lifetime. A lifetime, not just when people are young, middle-aged, but over a lifetime. So it covers all ages. God calls us to have hearts that long to build rather than hearts that are prone to despise. So that when we gather together, we are committed to building people up. And we're not distracted by a heart that despises the work that God is doing among us because we might think it's small or not very significant. I'll be talking a lot more about that in the coming months as we shape the culture of the church here. But at the very least, can I encourage you over morning tea to ask each other how we can cultivate a culture of prayer and discipleship in this church as we seek to make disciples of all nations. So as we live in a world where appearances can be deceived, and this passage is reminding us today not to be consumed by what is outwardly impressive, but focus on playing our part in the often unimpressive work of making disciples. No matter how small it may seem and how difficult it might, may be, we know that God can move mountains, the mountains of opposition that lie in the way as we seek to make lifelong disciples of Jesus together. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this picture in Zechariah reminds us to be people who rejoice in knowing that you are present with us. We thank you that you sent Jesus as a sacrifice to reconcile us to you. We thank you that we are a part of your spiritual temple, a people that belong to you. Please help us to have hearts that long to build rather than hearts that are prone to despise the work you've called us to do in making disciples of many nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.